I'm Lauren. And I'm Eric. Over the past year, we've connected dozens of classic She-Ra episodes to modern progressive issues. But we're not done yet. In this second season of our show, I'm no longer a newbie to Etheria. This year, we're taking a higher level view of the characters and issues that face the Princess of Power. We're as interested as ever in how those issues connect to our current political landscape. So join us as we look back to the 80s and forward to the Netflix reboot of one of our favorite cartoons. This, this is, is She-Ra, Progressive, Progressive of Power. Hey everybody, welcome back to She-Ra, Progressive of Power. Once again, I am Eric. And I'm Lauren. Yes, you are. And we are here today to... T- <laughs> you seem surprised <laughs> that I like validated you on that. Well, why would it be in question? <laughs> well, I, I just want people to know that you're not some kind of replicant. I'm not a shapeshifter. No, you're not a faker to keep it in lore. Oh, um, real quick. So I think I've read like the description... So just yesterday they announced that there's going to be a He-Man versus Superman comic book written by past guest Tim Seeley. Yes. And I read the description like three times and I'm pretty sure that the, because it starts off with like a robotic impersonator has taken over Eternia. I'm pretty sure that's Faker. Neither here nor there, but Tim was talking about how much he always loved Faker and Faker never had a story. So I'm guessing now Faker has a story. That was some foreshadowing and we didn't know that it was. I know, right? Yeah, he would have known he wrote that book when we interviewed him. He just didn't talk about it. Yeah. Anyway, funnily enough, we're talking about capitalism and uh, income inequality and possessions today. And so I wanted to open this episode with a question directed to Lauren and I because we're both we're both kind of like fandomy people, right, Lauren? Yes. So even though I think as progressives we both understand kind of the inherent problematic nature of possessions we both also have things that we love right a lot of things a lot of memorabilia what is like your favorite like fan thing that you have it doesn't have to be he-man she-ra related i think for me which is interesting because it both isn't it's a thing but it's also experiential i have a copy of animal man number 26 which is the comic where animal man meets his author grant morrison and grant morrison is on the cover and i have it signed by grant morrison and that's probably my favorite thing that I own. So in actuality, it's like a 4 or $5 comic, and the signature doesn't add any value. But to me, it adds like infinite value. So maybe I'm actually skirting this question and finding like a way to reclaim my like progressive nature. Uh, all right. I, I guess my favorite things uh, aren't my favorite because they're expensive. Uh, but I'm going to kind of go in a different direction. And my favorite stuff is when uh, obscure characters get merchandise. And so uh, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to admit that I'm a huge Padme fan from the Star Wars prequels. And so anytime they release new Padme stuff, I super buy it. Like I have these um, Star Wars like Polly Pocket-esque dress-up dolls that were Disney Parks exclusives of Padme. And they're so feminine and so adorable. And I don't know anyone else who owns this toy because who would want Padme merch? But uh, the Forces of Destiny doll series is out and Padme's doll finally launched this month and I've already ordered it. I'm just a big junkie for like characters most people hate and when they occasionally still get that action figure. There's something interesting like counterculture nerdy in about that response, but we're not here to dive into it. Unlike Glimmer, <laughs> we're not going to psychoanalyze you today. Great. So we have a special guest with us. She is a co-worker of mine, actually. And the reason I know that she likes She-Ra is because when we did our live holiday special last year, I put out on the office Slack like, hey, we're doing this. Anyone I work with is welcome to watch the show, too. And uh, Holly, you were the only person who replied to me. What? Yeah. Uh, go figure. So, I know why. Well, why. Do you want me to just say why? Please. It's because I'm old. That Holly is not old. It's because I'm the like second oldest person that works for cards. That's probably true. N- nobody remembers the show. I can promise you that's why. Nobody knew what it was. Oh, th- now that makes me feel ancient. So this is Holly Sorry, Chernobyl. Dude. Oh, that's okay. I, I am ancient. I get it. Uh, Holly is, wh- your title is what, um, Retail Queen of Cards Against Humanity? Retail Alien Queen. Retail Alien Queen. So what that means is Holly is kind of the head of wholesale accounts for like stores that are authorized to sell Cards Against Humanity. So I think that's interesting because we're talking about 
possessions, capitalism, uh, the economy, and you told me very plainly that you are an anti-capitalist, and yet we and I, I share similar views, and yet we both work for a company whose goal is to make money. So what, where's where's your headspace with that? Like, how do you reconcile that? Hashtag best rep. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's true. I'd, at my old job at Pastimes, I told Holly she was my favorite rep because she was the only one who would regularly check in with me via email. That was true. Okay, so you're asking how I reconcile working for a company that has a focus on profitability? Or even just like like your your job is is commerce, right? And and yeah, it's it's a profit-driven position. So how do you square that with your anti-capitalist views? I'm not trying to put you on the stand. No, I just no, no. I, I debate this myself. No, I appreciate the question. First of all, this is the world we live in. Like you have to work, you know? And that's that's it. I mean, you have to work. And like I can work in a number of different fields. I have a lot of different skills. I mean, I don't want to get too personal, but this is the first job that I've had ever that gives me health insurance. (laughs) You know, Um, but the way that I reconcile it is that I just, you know, I just try to be as like uh, unevil as possible, really. You know, just just try not to work for I don't work for an evil company, you know, like I could work. I could go work for an evil company, but I don't. Yeah, I agree with that. Cards treats its employees really well. And I think the people in the organization make an effort to treat those I deal with really well. So I appreciate that you're saying that. But yeah, that's just a debate I have with myself, too, is like, you know, I'm all about like I'm pretty clear. I don't think I ever said this on the show, but I'm pretty clearly a socialist. And yet I I contribute to capitalist pursuits every day. But I think, as you say, that's this world we live in. So we have to square it somehow. Right. I mean, and I I pick my battles, you know. Well, and if you're going uh, to work for a company that does retail for profit because that's the world we live in. I'm sure there's something to be said positively for knowing that the company's political values may or may not be aligned with yours, knowing that they may or may not give to charity or causes that you believe in, and knowing that the product brings people laughter and joy as opposed to, you know, evil products, as you say. Right. And and the mission of the company when when I started and still is the mission of the company was to delight, which like from a philosophical standpoint, you know, when you compare that to like what the mission statement of capitalism in general is, is it's, it's not to delight. It's, it's more of a utilitarian sort of philosophy, right? So Bertrand Russell talks about this in On Authority and the Individual, which is a really great lecture series. It's super long, but you can listen to it on YouTube. And he talks about how through industri- industrialization and the expanse of expanding of capitalism that we moved away from like things that are delightful became less valuable but that's card's mission statement is yeah. to be delightful and i think in general right like the point of art is to show people that there are other and better ways to be uh even though that's a broad statement i hope that everyone who creates at least has a little bit of that in mind and i think cards is a very creative company as far as uh, capitalism goes. So I also, before we get to the episodes, you told me something before the show that I thought was just incredible, and I have to ask you about it. So when you were seven years old, she helped you have a very strong realization. Is that right? <laughs> oh, were you already texted about this, Lauren? No, no you don't know what is, it's going to be? This is new and exciting to me. Uh, okay, so um, she made me realize that I'm not white. And I didn't really know that before. I'm half Arab and adopted, adopted by white people. And if you were adopted in the 70s, like your family was told, just assimilate your child. Don't talk about where they're from or what their life could have been like or what language they would have grown up with or any of that stuff. Like you are just supposed to assimilate them. So I realized when I was about six or seven that... And I was watching She-Ra and I was like, I don't look like any of the people on this show. Like, I don't identify with any of them in far as and insofar as appearance. And obviously, I don't look like my, my adoptive parents either, right? And then I started looking around and trying to find where I was represented. And I didn't find that. I didn't find it at school. I didn't find it at home. I didn't find it in the media. And I had kind of a like a pretty 
dramatic identity crisis that I expressed to my mother by telling her that when I got old enough that I was going to have blonde hair and blue eyes and I was going to have plastic surgery to correct my nose to make my nose smaller mm. so it would look like she actually. I said, I was like, because I want a nose like that. And my mom was like, honey, I don't, I, I don't think that you can have blue eyes. And I was like, mom, science, they'll figure it out by the time I'm old enough. That is uh, incredible. And we've talked plenty about how the, one of the show's biggest failings is representation. But it's interesting that it had such a profound effect on you. Did you enjoy revisiting it today? Yeah, it was really interesting revisiting it today. Like, also, like, um, seeing the transformation sequences really somehow profound and moving and, like, and I'm I'm coming to some kind of realization about, like, <laughs> all the shows that I liked when I was a kid had some kind of transformation sequence. So, hmm, where to go with that? I mean, maybe it's just, like, a queer kid thing, you know, like, Probably most queer kids were like, someday I'll be able to transform. For the honor of we are going to talk about economics today, which I'm pretty excited about, with three episodes that kind of either dance around or hit this trend head on. So this is The Minds of Mondor, and I will probably accidentally say Mordor several times uh, because it took me about halfway through the episode to realize that wasn't what the episode was called. Uh, it starts with Hordak looking to find who is sort of aiding the rebels and leaking to them information. He suspects King Duplis, who is a neutral party in the uh, world of Etheria, and even though Prince, uh, I mean, King Duplis swears that he's innocent and he's neutral and he's helping both sides, uh, Hordak doesn't really care and decides sort of as collateral to move this conversation in the direction he wants it to go. He's going to capture Prince Hazar and send him to the mines of Mondor, not Mordor. Uh, there he's going to mine, quote, dangerous minerals and hopefully that as a sort of uh, interrogation tactic will bring out the truth about King Duplis and his work with the Rebellion. Uh, the Rebellion has to go save this prince. Uh, oddly enough, the mines are very far away, like much further away than anything else in this show has been. They have to go through a portal that kind of puts a ticking clock on the episode because it's going to close. But then beyond that, a ship, which they end up buying because nobody will take them to the mines. Uh, on that journey, they are attacked by the Horde on the sea. Eventually, after uh, a really kind of cool sailing action sequence with some storm magic, uh, there's a sequence where a bird attacks the rebellion, or more like a pterodactyl. And in helping this bird uh, heal its wounds, She-Ra teaches Glimmer a very valuable lesson. And then they also gain an ally who comes in as sort of the deus ex machina at the end of the episode to make sure everyone, including the prince, uh, gets home on time. Uh, there's also a pretty cool action sequence in which <laughs> all of the Horde generals run off of uh, the ship that looks like Hordak's face, giving the slaves the opportunity to just like five seconds later just run onto the ship and steal it. It is the clumsiest and most amazing of heists. Uh, at the end of the episode, Duplis says... Uh, you know, I'm still just not so sure I want to take a side in this. I'm, I'm not so sure I'm going to join the rebellion. And whereas in some of our episodes that we've covered recently, the people are kind of given a choice. Duplis and Angela really connect on the idea of parenthood and protecting their children. And he does, in fact, come over to the rebellion, which is a cool, I think, end note. We don't see like motherhood or parenthood be used very often as a plot point in a realistic way. Yeah, so this is our episode that focuses mostly on kind of the royalty that permeates throughout these shows, right? So literally, as Holly pointed out to me, and I can't believe I missed this, She-Ra is a princess, right? And the whole premise of the show is she gives up her princesshood, her comfy life on Eternia to be a freedom fighter. So in this episode, we're looking at how other royalty kind of interacts on Etheria. 
starting with the very funnily named King Duplis, whose twist was foreshadowed by the fact that he's called Duplis. <laughs> but then there's a double twist. Yeah, um, you said this was your favorite episode, Lauren? Yeah, I really like this one of the three, um, and not for a, an incredibly deep reason, but this actually had some really exciting action sequences for me, um, kind of the built-in, like I said, ticking clock put on the episode is we've got to get everyone out, slaves and royalty alike. We've got to get the ship back, and then everyone also has to get through the portal. And there's a couple of sort of false starts where you really think they're going to make it, but the horde is hot on their heels. Um, I've been really into playing Sea of Thieves lately, so sort of a sailing action sequence was cool. Um it's tough for me these days with all of the sort of repetitive and charming 80s animation of the show for me to actually get really into the action sequences. And I thought this episode was exciting. I agree. I, I think that um, this both shows like the the thought and care with which the show's writers dealt with themes of like classism and inequality and also kind of the broad swath which that they use the genre to paint things with. Because, yes, like the inciting incident, the kind of horror, right, is that the prince will have to go do work. He will have to work in the mines and it's unsafe working conditions. They make it a point to say he's basically doing like, well, they literally say it's slave labor, right? But what's interesting is, and again, this is something Holly said while you're watching, like there's a whole mine full of people who have been enslaved by the horde. and who knows how long. Right. And only when the king's son is put in danger does anyone go do anything about it. Yeah, this episode made me think a lot about the idea of political favors. Angela says early on, no glimmer, we don't help people in exchange for promises. And yet, sort of they must because otherwise they would have gone into this situation and done this rescue a lot sooner. Yeah, and also, like, there's this, the second act is kind of apart from the first and third acts because there is cool animation with like the seafaring scenes. But why do we need a whole second act of like, here's some surly dock workers who are angry for no reason. And there's just this whole second act of like escaping these like angry blue collar people. What does that have to do with anything? It feels like acts one and three were written. The script wasn't long enough. And they're like, you know, you really need to get them from A to C. So why not write this sea shanty? But yeah, I just, I thought that was strange that like on the one hand, we have a show that seemingly recognizes like the fact that royalty is involved now makes this a pressing concern, but then it's very flipped towards like the blue collar people who live on this world and their economic concerns. I bet this place used to be nice. Yeah, before the horde took over. Uh oh. This sure doesn't look like a welcoming committee. Maybe they're here to applaud my singing. Oh dear, if there's going to be a fight, I think I'll fly south for the winter, thank you. I This next episode makes me think that there is a family in trauma here. right? Okay, so Minds of Mondor, royalty, we see that Shira, you know, and this is written by Francis Moss, who is the guy who wrote Book Burning, and he wrote A Loss for Words. So he's very clearly... He's kind of the the hippie of the Shira writer crew, and he is very clearly digging at this idea that like for nobility, work is punishment. So we're gonna do an episode all about nobility of a family with Micah of Bright Moon, which finally Glimmer's dad comes back, and Glimmer goes on a real journey uh, emotionally. And it's kind of hard to watch in parts, I think. Yeah, the beginning is a little bit shocking, actually. It is. So, yeah, the very opening is like a three or four minute like Star Wars sequence where this character we've never seen before uh, is escaping Horde Prime. And Horde Prime calls him Micah. This guy, Micah, decides to go to Etheria. Meanwhile, we cut to Etheria. Glimmer's kind of casually talking to Bo about how she hasn't seen her dad in a long, long time. And it's her parents' 20th wedding anniversary. Well, guess what? It turns out Micah is her dad. So Micah's ship crashes on Etheria. And who should capture him but Hunga, Queen of the Harpies, who we last saw in the pilot. She was the character who had captured Queen Angela. So now Hunga has her husband. She gives a little video phone call to Queen Angela and says, 
you better come give yourself up and then I'll release your husband. Angela does what she requests, but of course Hanga is a liar and captures them both. Then Shira and Glimmer go to free the family. Uh, Angela has a pretty cool sword duel with Hanga, which was awesome. And uh, then the family is reunited. But then at the last moment, Micah decides that he can't be with his family because while Etheria is still subjugated by the Horde, he has to go out amongst the people and help them free his planet. Okay. Hold up just a ding-dang second uh-huh. because we already watched Red Knight. <laughs> right. So here's the thing. Those episodes are out of, like, Red Knight aired first, but watching this so close in proximity as we did, it's like 100% clear it's that- It's so clear yes, that that's who that's supposed to it's be. It's the same verbiage. I'm sorry, Holly. So we just watched an episode that was like, what, sixth or seventh in production order where this character called the Red Knight, who's like mysteriously good at everything, and Angela knows him, but he wears a mask, so you never know like who he is. And she's like, oh, I think your voice is familiar. And he says, well, that may be, but I can't reveal my face until all Etheria is free. Oh, it's, he says, says the exact same, same thing. thing. Yeah. yeah. Can't rest until all Etheria is free. I even wrote that down because I thought it was so bizarre. Yeah. Right. So, and like military kind of language. So clearly... It was intended for Micah to be the Red Knight. And these episodes got flipped in production order somehow. For as infrequently as there are recurring characters on this show, that's a big disappointment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. So, okay. Now that we know that the Red Knight is Micah. So the- now he just looks like a deadbeat dad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. He just left. Let's talk about it. But he didn't just leave. He was captured and imprisoned by the Horde. No, at the end, though. At the oh. end of the episode. He's like, I'm finally reunited with you all. Deuces. And if you don't know in continuity that he's this, like, freedom fighter vigilante who stays near his family, it kind of looks like he's just leaving. Even still, though, Maybe like... pessimistic. No, I, th- I think there's a lot to unpack there. So, first of all, Glimmer has some very upsetting behavior in this episode she talks to a man who isn't there she dances with the air and falls off a cliff because she's pretending she's dancing with her dad and then she has this very weird conversation with shira where glimmer's like shira we have to go rescue my parents and shira's like i understand your concern but you know you have to understand queen angela knows what she's doing and glimmer's like yes you're right we do have to go like completely not listening to shira like this girl is in trouble. But then Shira just does does what Glimmer wants. Yes. That is true. I I agree. There's some real signals here that uh you used the word trauma before and I think trauma is accurate in a lot of ways. It said a lot to me that Glimmer's childhood nickname of Sunshine isn't used until the end of the episode, sort of when, you know, when death is imminent and we know her dad is near. Suddenly this childhood relic from when Micah was still around is like okay to use again. And at first I thought that was sweet, but then I thought about it and I'm like, that's got to be like maybe a trigger almost for Glimmer that we just don't use anymore because it's way too sad. And we can only bring it up now because we may never see her again. But it's like it's almost like a forbidden thing that they weren't doing in their family. Well, her mom uses it, too. It's said twice in the episode. And it's this really bizarre, like, infantilization where, like... And then it's it's a mixed message, too, because her mother says, you're a big girl now, sunshine. But is she, if you're calling her sunshine? Yeah, so the question I ask kind of after all of this is, what next? And had the Red Knight episode aired in the right order, I guess in a way we would know what next. But instead, there's just this sort of sad, open-ended, like Glimmer was hoping for this for so long. And clearly Angela, with some of these lines that she says, like in that sword fight, she's like, my husband is what's good for me. They clearly love him so much. And if they know that he's nearby but not with them, like how are like what do they do? I guess I guess what I'm dancing around is the question like is there is there mental health like help? Are there therapists on Etheria? Because if it were 2018, like not to make light of it, but at my darkest time in my life at age 30, I sought out a therapist for the first time and it was life changing. 
And not only did it help me through the thing I was going through, but made me a better wife and a better friend and a better sister that as an adult, I watched this cartoon show and I, I genuinely am hoping like resources like that are available in this universe for this situation. That's how much it sort of messed me up watching this for these people. Yeah, like this really gives some pathos to Glimmer in a way that does make me concerned for her. And it, I kind of wish like, I hope Noel Stevenson's crew watched this episode, you know? And they, because like that's a pretty potent background for a character that we don't always know a lot about. Like, generally, we think of Glimmer as, like, she's kind of a princess, but even that's not too important. She's the not amazing leader of the rebellion before Adora shows up. That's, like, all we know. And now we know she has this past where her dad left. She has no idea where he is. Like, her mom kind of treats her like a little baby still. And, like, yeah, no wonder she feels less than sometimes, right? And she feels like she doesn't uh, have the wherewithal to lead the rebellion. Do you think, kind of to our earlier point, her status as royalty in this society kind of makes that worse? Because I feel like it could, um, given that Bright Moon is always under attack. I think she's pretty sheltered. I mean, for lack of a better phrase, she doesn't get out that much. Yeah, the, the fact that this whole drama plays out with royalty is in itself, I think, interesting. And something characters love to do in this show is capture each other and make each other slaves, right? And Next to taxes, it's like the most popular thing for the bad guys to do. Yeah, and I don't know if I fully unpacked this, but there's a lot of subjugation metaphor here. Not even metaphor, like the text is like subjugation-based. Even like Hunga um, says something really fucked up to Angela about like, I'm going to make you watch while your husband serves me. And she says, I've always wanted a personal slave. Like that, yeah, over and over again, like there's this, um, you know, aspect of freedom being under attack. Like what is freedom on Etheria? I actually asked this in our last episode, and at the time we didn't know what to do with it, but my question was, what is the Rebellion's sort of long-term strategy, or what is their long-term goal? And I was asking that from more of a tactical perspective, but this week I'm asking it as, like, who gets to be in charge? Because there's a zillion kings and queens on the, and princesses on this show, and I don't think they're all qualified. So what sort of crazy power vacuum happens? Like, do they have a government they're going to put in place after they win it back from the horde? Nah, girl, it's going to be anarchy. <laughs> it's going to be tight. They'll have a gift economy. <laughs> that really is a great question, though. And it makes me think that there's backstory to the show that was never explored. Like, maybe Etheria was so easy to conquer because there's just a lot of ineffective nobles with weird family interpersonal drama going on and not as much an organized front like the horde with their technology could just walk in. Yeah, because royalty is like inherently incompetent, right? You know, because they're only in power because of their divine right, you know, but actually like, what are their qualifications? That's true. And it, it wasn't until the rebellion got someone who pointedly gave up being royalty to lead them that they scored any victories at all. So... Yeah, these are all, like, really excellent questions. Yeah, democracy or any alternate form of government hasn't really come up at all. No. No, we see kind of that capitalism exists rather than, like, serfdom in, in the rebellion society. But it seems like uh, a noble hierarchy is the only way this world is was politically organized. I highly laugh when we were watching the heartbeat sequences and she was like, oh, are the harpies part of the horde? I'm like, no, they're a sovereign nation. But I think that's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's they're they're going to be, you know, fighting the Game of Thrones, too, when the time comes. Yeah, because uh, what's her name? Hunga? She is also a queen. And also drawn very, very queer. Like, Hunga is ripped as shit. My <laughs> God, did you see her muscles? Did you notice? I only noticed insofar as every time a new character comes on the screen, I'm like, damn, they work out. The way that basically all the harpies are drawn is like much more androgynously. Like they aren't immediately identifiably feminine. 
except they have long hair. Like their facial structures are much more angular and masculine. Their jaws are stronger. They don't have they have cheekbones, but much more in like a masculine kind of way of having cheekbones. Like more Killian Murphy and like less, I don't know, biling or something. Like, you know, they they don't have the softness and femininity of or like traditional, typical femininity, expected femininity that She-Ra or any of the like whatever the She-Ra crew is, you know, like they all have rounded, more rounded bodies. Even the harpies' torsos are like cut. It was very exciting. If we're talking about how characters are coded and how Hunga seems to have a little bit of a fetish for King Micah, that's pretty interesting. It makes me want to revisit. The pilot when she had Angela captive because was was there as much sexual tension there too? It would not surprise me if there was. I just wouldn't know to look for it until having seen this episode. I've always wanted a personal slave. Micah will do just fine. I will never serve you. Ha! Oh yes, you will. And you, my dear, shall watch your husband bow and serve me. So our first two episodes, as Lauren made me realize, show why theory is in such political shambles. Now we're going to look at, I think this is as close as we get to economy in the show and looking at Horde Prime, right? The ruler of the Horde, who's, (laughs) how he likes this phrase, thirst for possessions, uh, is the motivating factor for this episode. So this is for want of a horse. It is Horde Prime's birthday. And... (laughs) How does he have a birthday? Everyone has a birthday. God. But Horde Prime? Does he have a Zodiac sign? Like, there's so much, yeah, there's so much um, just world building in in this beginning here. He apparently has two armies, two space fleets, and two heads. So the suggestion is let's get him two ties. He's a Gemini. Oh, yeah, of course he is. God. Same. <laughs> well, that was easy. We answered that one for you, Shira fans at home. Thank goodness we didn't leave that door open. Yeah, the joke is he has two of everything, right? Yes. And I guess literally heads, it's hard to tell when he's just claws and smoke. But anyway, Shadow Weaver, ever the smartest person in the Horde, actually comes up with the right idea, which is let's give him something we know he doesn't have, which is Swift Wind. And so they unleash a plan to capture Swifty, and they don't. I mean, I don't— Well, they do. <laughs> they do temporarily. Yeah. Yeah. They capture him, and one of the things that was another kind of interesting world-building thing about Horde Prime is that he apparently resents and hates things that fly. And so they're going to keep Swiftwind underground and in the dark. It's such a great monologue. Yeah, so he his wings wither away from not being used anymore. And it's really sad. I imagined watching this as a child and being like, oh, God. Yeah, even Swift Wind starts crying. That part now terrified me. It was, it was so poetic and dark. I just, I, I couldn't believe that Hordak was the one who was saying it. Yeah, and so maybe fill in the details of the rescue for me because the rest of my notes are just Bo saying things like, uh, it's... It, this looks like a job for one of the greatest heroes of the rebellion, me. And then he looks at the camera like it's the office. And then I just wrote taxes. So maybe yeah. you need to talk about the I end of this one. <laughs> I, I, I also wrote taxes. I, <laughs> taxes There's not an bingo. end written down, and I'm sorry. I mean, the rest of the episode kind of doesn't matter, right? Like, you're exactly right. They capture Swiftwind. Shira finds another passageway the Horde somehow doesn't think she'll use to infiltrate the Fright Zone to infiltrate the Fright Zone. She rescues Swiftwind. Then Bo tries to rescue her, but she, in fact, rescues Bo. Basically, end of episode. Except Hordak does end up getting Horde Prime the two ties and is dunked in the um, the trap door for it. Those were pretty cool ties, though. Those were like mm, bespoke, mm. one-of-a-kind ties. <laughs> Two-of-a-kind ties. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, we each, this is so cool, each had a different favorite episode. So Lauren's, yours is Minds of Mondor. Uh, Holly, you said yours is Micah Brightmoon. This was my favorite episode. And it's it's kind of just a comedy, except for that one super dark moment of Hordak's monologue, which I also loved. 
It's so dark and terrifying. And as for you, Swift Wind, would you like to know what Horde Prime will do with you? Um, think it'll put you in a zoo or a circus? I have nothing else to say to you, Hordak. Good. Then I will talk. I will tell you what Horde Prime will do to you. He will put you in a cage in the deepest, darkest dungeon he can find and leave you there. You will be fed, taken care of, but you will never see the sky, never see sunrises or sunsets. You see, Horde Prime cannot fly, and he hates anything that can. As the years pass, your mane will become gray from the darkness, and your wings will wither from lack of use. You will never fly again, and you will never, ever see Shira again. <laughs> the reason I wanted to talk about this is because to me, Horde Prime's drive is the closest we get to like a stand-in for capitalism in this show, for unchecked capitalism, right? Because he has two of everything, and if he doesn't have it, he wants it. And he can't let anything that he doesn't have exist. Is this not like Jeff Bezos? Yeah. Oh, yikes. Too real. (laughs) So what I was going to say is kind of in that same vein, this episode really strikes at the Swiftwind's agency. And She-Ra even calls him mine at one point. And that was a bit of a misstep for me because I thought the whole point was... Swiftwind doesn't belong to anybody, you know, the least of which should be Horde Prime. But both sides kind of stake claim to this character who has sentience and has his own wants and intention going on. And that was that as a commentary on capitalism and sort of how autonomy. Yeah, it was really chilling, actually. Well, I think it's also it's it's more of a comment on like not just capitalism but property and ideas of property because what's what's really interesting was at the end of the episode when Lookie comes up and I was like what the fuck is the message gonna be I can't I don't even know maybe it's eat your vegetables I don't know and Lookie's commentary on it was like our bond with our pets and I'm like oh so are you saying that Swiftwind is She-Ra's pet because that creates a totally different relationship between She-Ra and Swiftwind than I had assumed previously was that that Swiftwind was with her out of loyalty and devotion and through his own will and autonomy. But that's not the case, as you pointed out. I definitely agree. I'm so happy you brought up the word loyalty because I wrote it on my paper really big. Um, This episode in a very Donald Trump sort of way, asks what demands respect and what demands loyalty? And is it something you get by default? Is it something you get through shows of power, through possession, or is it something you earn? And Horde Prime seems to think taking away the gifts of others, taking away Swiftwind's flight is what makes him more powerful and worthy of respect and Hordak thinks, you know, giving him the best gift, the most wonderful gift, that's what's going to gain loyalty. And I think they all they all realize that they're sort of wrong. I think that button is missing, that button where She-Ra needs to say, I don't own him either because no one does. It doesn't come. And then Hordak has the audacity to say that the idea of taking Swiftwind and giving him to Horde Prime was his idea, which it was not. So there's an idea, there's like a concept in there about like ownership and and even intellectual property. I agreed with that. And on the question of like when is enough enough, what attracted me to this episode is the ability to have the discussion about when in an economic setting do you say, I've done enough because I feel like that's antithetical to capitalism, right? It's like you always have to want more. You have to be thirsty to put the other guys out of business because it's a zero-sum game and only you can succeed and have the flying horse that then you take away its ability to fly. And that's just not, I don't know, like this sounds like I have no ambition and I don't think that's true, but I just think there needs to come a point where you're like, you know what? I've done 
well enough and I can coexist in the environment that I am in without destroying everything else. Well, okay. I didn't know if we were going to be able to work this into this episode or not, but I have kind of similar questions about J.B. Pritzker, who actually is, you know, marketed as a Democrat. He's marketed as as my guy. He's supposedly on my team. Mm-hmm. But I'm really weirded out by the Pritzker grip on the city of Chicago. It's the Pritzker, you know, performance venue. It's the Pritzker Law School. And now instead of saying, gosh, my my name is all over libraries and monuments all over this city. I've done so much. I mean, I don't want to sugarcoat it. He just he's going to buy the governor election at, at the, the story on NPR that I mentioned before we got in here was that we're going to pretty certainly shatter here in Illinois the national record for the most expensive uh, gubernatorial race of all time. Uh, the previous record being in California. I mean, this race has barely begun. We're just out of the primaries and we're apparently halfway there. And I just, you know, do you just have to keep throwing money at titles and influence? When is it enough? Yeah, exactly right. And there's a horrifying trend now that, quote, successful business people now decide that the next realm to go into and to buy is political power. And boy, that's fucking terrifying. Like, pretty categorically, I'll just go ahead and say, like, I don't want a billionaire to run for president ever. I don't want a filthy rich person representing me because they don't understand me. Right. I can't recall if we talked about this on this show before or not, but there was a video going around a couple months ago now that was sort of marketed as like, look how cute Bill Gates is. But it was showing that Bill Gates doesn't know what things cost. They were like, Bill Gates, how much do you think these Totino's pizza rolls cost? And he's like, I don't know, $23. And it's ju- it just really pains me to think you can get an amount of money in your life that you just don't know what things cost anymore. Best of intentions. How on earth can you relate to regular people? Did everybody hear about what Moby said or like he wrote a he wrote an article. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. So Moby wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal that was about the SNAP program. And like I didn't say this before, but since we're all sharing, um, you know, I lived in poverty for my whole adult life until I worked for cards, actually. And like so I'm only very recently out of poverty. So I spent a lot of time in the food stamp office a lot of time at DSHS. And Moby is criticizing the food stamp SNAP program, and he's saying that we should... Yeah, <laughs> that's the face I made. He's saying that that food stamps shouldn't pay for things like candy, soda, quote-unquote unhealthy food, and that it should only be able to be used for... You know, well, he's also a vegan, right? So he's like, it should only be for like fruits, vegetables, beans, you know, just vegan stuff, right? Oh, anything he's okay with. Yeah, I was going to say real easy to say when you could afford literally anything. Yeah. And also a vegan dude telling people what they should and shouldn't eat. Are we all we're all super surprised, right? Yeah. But what he's talking about, like the availability of unhealthy foods to the poor doesn't have anything to do with the SNAP program. Not at all. He's just completely out of touch. He doesn't understand that there's food deserts. He doesn't understand that, you know, what's available to people both economically and access an access point of, like, geographical proximity. Like, those things are what's keeping health out of people's reach. It has nothing to do with the fact that you can buy unhealthy food with SNAP. I, I just want to thank you for sharing that. I think that's, that's very um, cool. And I, I'm in a similar situation where, and I mean, it was totally my fault, but I destroyed my credit and finances and only because of cards employment have I been able to pull myself to not living check to check. And I hope I never forget what that was like. Yeah, I have a one of my best friends who I don't think he listens to this show, but if you do, hey, hey, bud, um, he is a the town doctor in a very depressed area in southern Illinois. And like other than some like fluke lottery winner or something has the nicest house in town and everybody knows it. And uh, I was talking to him about how he raises his kids 
to like square that with the world that they live in. And he said he makes it a point of teaching them that their parents have earned the money that they have, but they don't deserve it. And I thought that was a really great distinction. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, that's how I look at it too. Like, do any of us deserve to get to live relatively comfortable lives when other people literally can't afford food? Probably not, but we're lucky and hopefully we don't ever forget how lucky we are. That's my criticism of J.B. Pritzker and my criticism of a lot of the 1% in general is I just find it really hard to believe that you can care about people and their struggles as much as you claim you do if the thing you're spending the money on is a political win or a power grab instead of just literally feeding people. It's so crazy. I I wish that the general rhetoric, you know, out there in the dark corners of the Internet would spend less time worrying about what people in poverty are spending their money on and more on what hyper rich people are spending their money on. Because like an icon that my dad really admired when I was young was Jay Leno. And he talked a lot about how many cars Jay Leno had. And I wish I heard instead of admiration more often does Jay Leno really need that many cars? Because if we're going to say this this population, unfortunately, on the struggling end of society, can't eat something, why does Jay Leno get to have 19 cars? And that's not a problem. Oh, more than 19, like 100. Well, so we talked about how there's a commonality with all of the different episodes that we watched where there's references to taxes often. So like in the first one... Hordak is collecting taxes from King Duplis, correct? Well, Hmm. and ostensibly, we can assume that the money is being, like, whatever they use for money, puka shells or whatever, (laughs) is being spent on technology for the Horde, right? So, like, you can easily make the bridge that, like, what does the U.S. government spend money on? The U.S. government doesn't spend money on the quote-unquote welfare system, doesn't spend it on education for the public. It doesn't spend it on bettering hospitals. We certainly don't have anything even close to universal health care. What do we spend it on? We spend it on the horde. (laughs) I mean, we spend it on our military, right? You guys probably saw that tweet that was being sent around that's like, how much were the missiles that were fired on Syria and how much would it cost to... make the water in Flint, Michigan drinkable. Yeah, it was like one-sixth of the price of the missiles to, like, repair Flint's infrastructure, something like that. And I'd love to know how much Pritzker has spent on his own campaign, you know? Like, what could you do with all that money? What could you do with it? It's mind-boggling. So what you're saying is that we we just watched some episodes of a show where an effete and ineffective class of nobles gave way to an illegitimate technocratic fascism that bought its way to the top. Yeah, there's definitely no parallel to real life here. No, this is this is fantasy. Yeah. Horde Prime, leader of the mighty Horde Empire, ruler of a thousand worlds, the most feared being in three galaxies. What did he want? To remind me that his birthday is coming up. And that he expects a present, a good one. So I want to then extend the question that we are asking a lot this season. How would we like to see this fixed or portrayed in the new show? Part of me thinks that the fantasy genre is always doomed to economic abstractions because it's unless you're like doing straight up Robin Hood, it's tough to address issues of economy head on. That said, I think a little bit of digging into exactly how these nobles failed to function and what allowed the horde to take over and saying that out loud that must be a plot point right like presumably this show will have a stronger sense of continuity because that's what kids want nowadays that's what sells i want to know why the horde was able to get such a good stronghold in previous episodes we've seen they exploit already existing uh kind of frustrations like finding Shadow Weaver and, you know, granting her power because she's mad at how things are going. But on a global scale, I want to see that happen. I would, I agree with that. And I would also like to see, as I kind of already stated, more about the rebellion's goals. 
I, I almost mistakenly just said, maybe they'll eliminate the nobility entirely. Maybe it'll just be about overtaking the horde. But they can't because we already know the show is named She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. We know this is a world for whatever that means has multiple princesses in it. And so I'm I'm actually quite interested in the politics of it. Well, I was just going to say on the point of nobility, I mean, it's not that it's just not that difficult to make it obvious that the nobility is the one percent or like or to make it to make it clear that there's a parallel between those two things, you know, and I think that that's that might be the direction that they go in. That's a great point. I'm not super familiar with Noelle Stevenson's earlier work, except for Nimona. But my guess is that as a progressive woman, she's probably pretty keyed into these uh, income inequalities that are just in the fabric of our society. And how could you possibly escape them? And I guess I'd like to bring it back to where Holly kicked it off, which is that, you know, in a, in a way, it, it does feel like maybe you're sitting in your car or wherever listening to this and being like, how the fuck are these three people talking about like, income inequality and all this shit when like they're doing a show about toys that like only existed because Ronald Reagan deregulated the FCC and like that's a great question but I think it comes back to the issue of joy right like She-Ra is a show that brought joy to children 30 years ago and we're trying to unpack the messages that maybe it did or didn't give them and it brings joy to us three adults and I think this new show is poised to bring joy to a new generation of children and I don't know, I think She-Ra is something that kids could really use right now, and that that's how I square that away, even though it is kind of an, a silly pursuit. Yeah, and we will be buying the toys. <laughs> At least Shadow Weaver. <laughs> Thanks for listening to She-Ra, Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com, or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower. As we discussed this week, fighting wealth inequality is a daunting task because it's sewn into the fabric of our society. That said, there are a handful of small ways everyone can help, starting with making sure folks have enough to eat. Lauren and I really like the Greater Chicago Food Depository, our home city's food bank that provides meals to the hungry and fights to end hunger in general in our community. You can learn how to donate your time and your food at chicagosfoodbank.org. <laughs>